Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Take your Bibles with me. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Just a couple of quick things. We, we'll get back to singing some more here in just a bit. I don't want you to feel cheated. What? They only did two songs. So you're supposed to start doing the, the chanting for the next song. Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're going to continue our study in the, the, the answering the question, what is the gospel? And I'm actually going to a place that's a little bit different, but it was funny as we're singing that last song, and I'm... Okay, so I <laughs> didn't plan any of this. Here we go. Uh, we have baptisms today, but, but not in this service right now. That could change. I don't know if that's why you're here this morning. Maybe God's got you here because today is the day that he wants you to follow the the Lord and believers' baptism. Maybe that's, that's why you're here. I don't know. Um, and, and I made the comment to my wife earlier this morning. I was like, man, I would love preaching this message this morning so much more if it wasn't Baptism Sunday because I don't, I don't, I, I, baptism is really important in this. And it, but, but the message of the baptism of Jesus is so much bigger than just what happens here today, whether it be second service or the ones we're scheduled or, or if you come this morning to be baptized. But as we're singing that song, what I want you to know, even before I start, even if it doesn't come out of my mouth again, because I do have that tendency, if you are in Jesus Christ, this morning, what you need to know right now is that as the Father looks at you, he doesn't see the failures of your past, he doesn't see the screw-ups of this morning, he doesn't see the anger that you expressed on your way here in traffic or behind the farm equipment, okay? He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't see you through the lens of your failures and how many times and creative ways you've screwed things up. What he sees you and how he sees you is through the same exact lens he uses when he looks at his son, Jesus Christ. So, so maybe you're here, but that's, that's the whole reason you're here is just to hear that part. That is a predominant message of Matthew chapter 3 this morning. This is not your typical passage you look at when you want to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and its play in the gospel for us, but it's a perfect picture of the substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf and the reminder that we don't just get forgiveness of sins. That's fine and wonderful and good and precious, and we desperately need the forgiveness of our sins, but we get more than that. We get the acceptance and favor and delight of our Father, and that's what we're going to see this morning, so... So now, I, don't, I just preached the whole message. I just pray, go home, let's be done. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said this, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now this fellow John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sin. Okay, let me start just by talking about the guy. Okay, this is John the Baptist, one of the more unique characters of all of Scripture. He's the cousin of Jesus Christ. He's probably about six months older than Jesus. Um, he he, he kind of comes off different, different in appearance. He, he, he wore a camel hair outfit with a leather belt. Now, Today, you didn't know this, I know this now, maybe you do know this, John the Baptist was ahead of his time. Camel hair is incredibly expensive. I found a Gucci coat for 4300 bucks. It'll be delivered on Wednesday. Um, just kidding. So, so, so it, but, but that was not the kind of clothing he was wearing, right? So he was unique in his appearance, but he was also unique in his diet. He, 
he ate honey and locusts. Now, a couple of us remember years ago, we did something in the service. Uh, I handed out little packets of, um, of grasshoppers, and they were flavored, like Parmesan garlic grasshopper, um, salt and vinegar, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, and then a bunch of us had to go to a wedding after the service, and we were waiting for the reception, and it's like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And I made the mistake of saying I was hungry, and all of a sudden, all these packets of crickets showed up on my table. And I ate them, and, and I guess the thing to say about locusts is lots of protein, still better than kale, <laughs> but the legs get stuck in your teeth, <laughs> and that's awkward. So, But that's John the Baptist. He's just, that's who he is. Now, now listen, so, so you get a guy who's unique in his appearance. He's, he eats weird things. He dresses with weird clothing. He doesn't shower. That's not super unusual in our culture today. It's kind of like a middle school retreat. But, but here, John the Baptist is this anti-establishment dude. He is just standing in the face of everything because the religious leaders, the religious elite of the day, they were locked into the culture of Jerusalem. They were well-educated. They were well-dressed. They were well-fed. They were in their best manners. That's not John the Baptist. And as John went about his ministry, um, people looked at him and, and thought, this guy reminds us of Elijah. Well, why does he remind him of Elijah? First, in uh, his appearance... Uh, if you go to 2 Kings 1, I don't have time to do that this morning, but I would encourage you this afternoon. 2 Kings 1 is a, a cool chapter. I read it uh, again this morning, and, and it's, it's actually quite funny. Uh, you get this king, Ahazai, who who's, um, has some kind of accident, falls out of a lattice window, injures himself, ends up in bed, sends his, his men to go um, and, um, Beelzebub, to go, go talk to the Beelzebub, the, the false idol, to find out if he's going to live or not. And he says, go, go find out from Beelzebub. And so his men leave, and they run into Elijah along the way. And Elijah's like, what, does God not exist in Israel? you got to go out of the country and talk to Beelzebub to find out? No, you just go back to your master and let him know he ain't going to live. And the guys are like, okay. So they head back. <laughs> and Ahazai's like, what are you, how are you back so soon? They're like, well, we ran into this guy. And he said, what, does God not exist in Israel? You have to go into another country, talk to Beelzebub, to find out, just tell your master he's going to die. And Hazai, you can almost hear the groan in his voice. He's like, <laughs> describe the guy. And the way they describe him is he was hairy and had a leather belt. Or he's dressed in hair. He wasn't just hairy. <laughs> That's a different guy. <laughs> and Hazai said, oh, yeah, that's Elijah. He was known by his appearance. And so here's John the Baptist, similar in appearance, but he's also similar in a lot of different ways. If you were to dig into it, his calling the nation to repentance, standing against wicked kings of the day. Elijah was standing against Ahab, John the Baptist standing against Herod. The queens both wanting uh, Elijah and John the Baptist. Jezebel wanted Elijah dead. Herodias wanted John the Baptist dead, he, and she got her way. You also have this really interesting nugget, which, again, I don't have time, but if you look at 1 Kings 19, Matthew chapter 11, you find that both Elijah and John the Baptist struggled with depression and doubt, normalizing that for many of us. But more importantly than their appearance and their ministry, it's their message was very similar. You see John the Baptist's message. For those of you that take notes, it's not difficult. Repent. That's it. That's point one, two, and three. Repent. Forsake the sin that you keep running back to. Make the U-turn. Head back to the way. Don't, don't try to navigate through the woods to find your way. No, you drove past the road. Turn around and go back into that same road. Repent. Make the turn. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
It's an appropriate message for us today. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not because the world is falling apart. It's not because we just had a pandemic. It's not because there's wars and rumors and wars. It's not because of any of those things. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Yeah, Jesus is going to return. I have no idea when. Don't ask me. If somebody tells you they know when, run as fast as you can away from them. Jesus himself said he didn't know the hour. Just keep that in mind. Not that you would ever run into anybody like that. He's coming back like a thief in the night. We don't know when. But that's not the point. It's not the point. Jesus is coming, so repent. It's no, repent because the kingdom is already here. It's not a geographic thing, right? Not a geographic thing. It's a time that we currently live in. And the kingdom of heaven was introduced. It was inaugurated. It began the moment Mary heard, it's a boy. Because in that moment, God broke through and visited us from heaven. He brought his authority. He brought his salvation. He brought his hope to us in that moment. It's the whole reason that while Mary was still pregnant with Jesus, she walked into Elizabeth's presence, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was like, he's here, inside of her belly, which you think it's crazy when your baby starts bouncing around. This kid did flips. The kingdom of heaven is here. You better make some changes. Repent. Now you look at the response. Verse 5, the people from Jerusalem, Judea, all the vicinity, they keep showing up. That's how you know it's a work from God. You know it's a work of God when, when you have this hardcore preacher standing up and saying unpopular things and calling people names and people keep walking in the door. That's what's happening for John the baptizer. That works. I guess I can call him the baptizer. John the baptizer, not only were they continuing to show up, but then they were being baptized. John tells us in verse 11, which we're going to get to here in a moment, that this is a baptism of repentance. It's not Gentiles becoming Jews. It's not Jews going through the ritual cleansing of the moment. This is a baptism of repentance. And he's saying, every single one of you within the sound of my voice, including your religious people, we'll talk about in a second, you need to repent. Come back to God. And then demonstrate the seriousness of your decision to return to God with the picture of water baptism. Let's continue, verse 7. Now, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, welcome, glad you're here. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. The one who is coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not even worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. So here you have these two different groups showing up at this, this movement of God among the people. You've got the Sadducees arriving. This is an aristocratic bunch of people who had connected or been connected with everything that was going on at the temple at the time. They were also in close quarters, in close relationship with the Roman government of the day. 
The Sadducees made up the, the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the day. Uh, Josephus, the, the great ancient uh, Jewish historian, says the Sadducees were known for being rude, arrogant, power-hungry. They were quick to dispute with those who disagreed with them, especially if the other people they were disagreeing with were anti-Rome. I'll let you apply that yourself. A group that made peace with the Romans, the surrounding culture, the nation that had come in, and didn't get super concerned with Jesus and his message until it became obvious that his ministry and his teaching wasn't pro-Rome. Interesting. Sadducees ceased to exist in 70 AD. Because the Romans, you know, the buddies of the Sadducees, came in and wiped them out. So just saying. Let's move on. Pharisees. We know a lot about Pharisees. We call everybody Pharisees, don't we? That's like the, the greatest Christian insult ever. Your hair's too long. Mom, you're such a Pharisee! No, you're a slob, that's all. I mean, let's just keep it. The Pharisees, they, they, they're a group that uh, their name, Pharisee, comes from the Hebrew word that means to separate from other people to be distinct from. They were the ones that focused on purity. They focused on religious piety. They were the ones that if they got spices at the market, they would tithe off their spices. So that'd be interesting to come back to our offering boxes and open it up and be like, hey, look, we got a little dill today. That's good. Thank you. But that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were strict judges of the law, but more than that, they were more concerned about the fences that they had established around the law. So, so, so what they were trying to do was to make sure that nobody could actually offend the law. So they would establish their priorities, their, um, their rules, uh, their, 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 their whole entire uh, system at a higher level than the law. So that way, hey, you, you can't possibly touch the law, even if you offend what we have. Here, here's the problem. When you start focusing on the fences more than the law, you're in trouble. Here's a really dumb uh, illustration, but hopefully it helps a little bit. So I'm a firm believer <clears throat> that we should be very careful with our technology, particularly laptops and portable devices. So what that means, guys, I'll talk to guys specifically. Guys, you, you should make sure your computer, your laptop, your portable device, your technology, whatever it is, is not set up in such a way that you can hide in the corner completely free of any accountability and nobody looking over your shoulder. Because I believe, although you could be sitting in the corner doing your devotions, right? You could. But the reality is you just made it easier for yourself to sin. You're easier for yourself to screw up and nobody else to know and nobody else to hold you to account. And so I would say a good fence is move your technology to, to a place where other people can see it. But just because your laptop's in the corner doesn't mean you're going to hell. And that's what the Pharisees went to. If you don't follow our rules, our fencing, then you, you are going to catch full judgment from God. And so now John the Baptist sees these groups come in, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he starts off, good old John the Baptist, name-calling and sarcasm. That's my kind of guy. You, you brood of vipers. That means your parents are snakes. Who warned you? I mean, that's pure sarcasm. I see you. I know you. And what he knew is that those two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were a picture of everything that had gone wrong with religion in the day. I think Jesus also paints that picture for us in Luke chapter 18, where he tells the story of two men who go to the temple to pray. And the first 
is this is a Pharisee. He's a fellow who's a religious guy, a churchgoer, a tither, a Bible reader, grew up in the church, right? And he walks into the, the, the temple, full up front row, stands before everyone, you can imagine him extending his arms as he prays, and, and what floods his mind as he comes into God's presence is all the good stuff that he's done. But I'm so thankful you have made me a Pharisee who has not touched the law or violated this or done that or did this. I've done so many good things for you, but most importantly, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. So then enters the second guy, tax collector, a total mess. Tax collector would have turned his back on his family, on his nation. He had joined the occupation force, charging a little bit more than is necessary so he can stuff the extra in his pocket and make a little extra money on the side. And as he comes into the church, he doesn't even make it in past the back doors. He stops in the back. There's no way I'm walking in there because there's a chance that somebody will call me out or worse, lightning. So I'm just going to stand in the back, and as he lifts his head to heaven, he can't keep it lifted. He can't raise his arms. He lowers his head, and all he can do, it says, is beat his chest. God, I need mercy. I am a sinner. I don't even deserve to stand before you. Two very different pictures. And Jesus says, the fella who's beat his chest, confessed his need for mercy. The tax collector went home righteous because he understood he had no righteousness of his own. But the Pharisee went home guilty as he leaned on his own heritage, as he leaned on his own rule-keeping, on his own great work, because what he was leaning on was his own righteousness, which in fact is no righteousness at all. John the Baptist understood the Sadducees and the Pharisees represented all that had been wrong with religion at the time. It's everything that we we fight against here even in our culture. There is this huge understanding of Christianity as being saved by your religion. It's what you do, the rules that you keep, the, the dress that you wear. You speak a certain way. You read your Bible a certain number of times. You go to church a certain number of times. You're always doing something. The problem is this. You can never do enough. Salvation isn't by religion. Then you get the sneaky one that kind of comes in. Salvation is by moralism. We're supposed to be good people. So as long as we hold high level of morals that that agrees with a, a traditional historical position, as long as we don't do certain things, as long as we uh, separate from certain people and make sure we don't allow that, that, that sin to get on us, right? As long as we don't do those things, then, then God's going to see our goodness and he's going to rescue us. The problem is all of our goodnesses, even if they're multiplied, piled up are nothing but disgusting refuse in God's eyes. One of the things that we need to make sure we address, as uncomfortable as it might be, is the concept of salvation by nation. Now, they certainly had that going on here. We are the children of Abraham. We're Israelites. We're God's promised people. It is our nation that, that, that it makes sure that purchases, that guarantees God's favor upon us. Be careful. Uh, 
It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. It doesn't matter what party you look at, Democrat, Republican, Green, Labor, Independent, Socialist, they all claim Jesus is on their side. Right? Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a capitalist. Jesus was a Republican. Jesus was a Democrat. You and I are incredibly blessed to live in a country that we live in. We should take full advantage of it. These opportunities are uniquely ours. But if the opportunities that are ours here in America, the blessings that are ours because we live in America, if, if the American dream is the gospel, then there are seven and a half billion people who will never experience the favor of God. God's got to save us. We're his people. In God we trust is on our money. What God is that talking about? God does have a people. And he's going to save them. Some of them live in America. But most of them don't. God's people are those who have found themselves rescued by Jesus Christ because they've put their trust in him and him alone. And someday, someday we will stand in heaven with a whole mess of people. And I I don't know how it works. I don't know if we're all going to speak the same language. I told you last time, the tongues of angels. German, right? Because it's the most beautiful language ever. It's got to be that. I I have no idea how it works. I just know that somehow we're going to stand there and the most incredible thing in, in that moment is going to be this. Not that we speak the same language, not that we look the same, not that we, we, we sound the same, but, but that we're all gazing at the same Jesus. Salvation doesn't come by nationalism. It doesn't come by religion. It doesn't come by moralism. And folks, it doesn't come by heritage. Most likely, one of the things the Pharisees were referring to were children of Abraham. Well, it's our godly lineage, right? And, and we are a blessed church. Guys, we, we have a church that's been around 200 15-ish years. I mean, we got some generations that can happen here. And we live in a, in a community that, that the heritage is thick and wonderful. But just because your mama or your daddy or your grandmama or your granddad were Christians doesn't mean you are. Just because you go to church every week doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's like saying because you stay in your garage all day, you're a car. You can't lean on your heritage to save you. It's a beautiful gift to have. But it's not about your heritage. It's not about your nation. It's not about your moralism. It's not about your religion. Please understand what John the Baptist said is completely applicable to us today. The kingdom of heaven is here. Salvation can be yours if you repent from trusting in religion or moralism or, or where you live or in your heritage to save you. He says, listen, bear the marks of repentance. That should be us. Repentance is not a one-time event. Repentance is ongoing. It's lifelong. It's constant and consistent. And, and, And bearing the marks of repentance looks like you declaring and admitting your need for righteousness instead of proclaiming your own righteousness. I mean, John the Baptist gets this. So in their culture, only non-Jewish slaves... Uh, would take off and carry the master's sandals. And, and, and John here says, listen, there is one who is coming. I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. I don't even rise to the level of his lowest slave. There, there is a king who is coming. 
There is one who is so holy and, and so magnificent and so majestic. I wouldn't qualify to be his lowest slave. And the way he ends in verse 12, he's coming and he's bringing the heat. He's got his winnowing shovel, the chaff he's going to burn with fire that never goes out. And you hear that and you're like, go, John, get him. Jesus is bringing the heat. And he is. But it looks a lot different than what we'd ever expect. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to stop him, saying, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus answered is, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And this is a funny phrase. We talk about this Wednesday staff. Then John allowed Jesus to be baptized. Very nice of John. And when Jesus was baptized, verse 16, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. In this moment, John recognizes Jesus and tries to stop him from being baptized. Listen, Jesus, this is a, this is a baptism of repentance. You've got nothing to repent from. You, there's, this isn't for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 look, John, John, this is to fulfill righteousness. Was Jesus' righteousness lacking? Did he need a top off? Had he lost some somewhere in the growing up ages? He had no need of repentance, and he is righteousness personified. So what in the world is happening here? It's a proclamation of the gospel again. Maybe one we're not quite as familiar with. We wouldn't see this as a gospel proclamation, but it is. The gospel is the announcement that your enemy has been overcome by absolutely nothing that you've done. (laughs) but by something that's been done for you, that the gospel is the announcement that even though you were separated from God in your sins and helpless to do anything about it yourself, God loved you and he gave you his son, not just to die for you, but to die in your place. And that's what's being announced right here. What you just witnessed in the baptism of Jesus Christ is an act of substitution. Jesus doesn't need the the baptism of repentance The crowd that gathered certainly did. We certainly would fit right in there, right? But not Jesus. It says the crowd is gathered around the Jordan River. And Jesus comes on the scene. Imagine, if you will, every person in the crowd having one of those those goofy name tag stickers that says, hello, my name is, and underneath it it says, sinner. Now, I I could remember your name then. That'd be easy, so that's a... Sinner, Jesus, making his way to John the Baptist through the crowd, is taking all of those stickers off of the crowd, and he's placing them on himself. And he's heading to the water. Because the baptism of repentance that John was offering wasn't for himself. It was for the crowd. It was for you. Just like the beatings, the mocking, the scourging, Crucifixion, those weren't for him. Those were for you. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died instead of you so that you could live. So as Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist in this baptism of repentance, 
He's doing it for the crowd. He's doing it for you. But it doesn't just stop there. As Jesus comes out of the water, this is, I mean, I always got goosebumps on this verse. Um, there's a little commercial too while I'm at it. But there was a moment in our recent trip to Israel where we're sitting beside the Jordan River that I had just covered in goosebumps. Okay, and here's the commercial. Um, if you ever want to go to Israel, year 2024, February, we're planning a trip. So just kind of file that in the back of your head. Start putting away your shekels now. See what I did there? Shekels. All right, anyway. So we're sitting there by the side of the Jordan River. Now, it's probably not the place where Jesus was baptized, but he was baptized somewhere there. And, and the fellow who was leading the devotional at the time just said, just think for a moment what it was like to be a kid, or even as a parent, a sporting event or something. And, and either as the parent having the privilege of looking and seeing your kid do something like, whoa, didn't even know he could do that. And then what comes out of you is this weird exclamation that you've never said before. And it just comes out, and you're like, how old am I? When all of you say, that's my boy! Right? It's so goofy, but it comes out because you're just filled up with pride. Like, that's, that's my boy. The only thing cooler than that is being the little boy round and third like, yes, I am. Right? Because it fills you with this enthusiasm. All we want as children is to be seen by daddy. And in that moment, Jesus himself hears the voice of his daddy saying, I see you. I couldn't be happier. I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. So the substitutionary act of Jesus at his baptism wasn't just him going and stealing stickers off everybody and being baptized for them. It is when he came out of the water, the substitution even continues because he makes his way through the crowd again and he's sticking more name tags on the people that says, child of God, accepted by the Father, delighted in by the only one that really matters. That approval, that acceptance, that delight, that exclamation of the Father now belongs to you because of what Jesus did. Now, now just, just to throw this at you real quick, I don't have a ton of time for this, but, but if you go to the next chapter, Matthew 4, you run into the, the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is led into the wilderness. And, 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 and uh, boil it down to this. The basic attack of Satan on Jesus is attacking his identity. So if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, you know what's awesome? It's one chapter. It's less than 40 days removed. Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, Jesus can say, I am. My daddy just said so. So why do we get baptized here? Why, why do we do baptisms? There's a lot of reasons. Jesus was baptized. The early church followed his example. Jesus commanded it. But here's another reason, guys. One of the Reasons for our baptism is not so that we can attain this secret sauce of my walk with God. It's so that as I look back at my baptism, I can remember that the voice of my father looked at me and said, you're a Jesus, that's my boy. So when Satan attacks your very identity, if he comes at you and says, are you really a child of God? Are you really his? You can point back and be like, okay, my baptism did not save me. Oh, but it was a picture of the thing that did. The substitution of my Savior, Jesus Christ, on my behalf. Man, if you're here this morning 
And you have placed your faith in Jesus. What does it mean to place my faith in Jesus? Do I have to write something, raise my hand, get a tattoo? What do I need? To place your faith in Jesus is simply to cry out with your heart exactly what is true. The fact that you're a sinner and that your only chance of a reconciled relationship with the Father is through the finished work of the Son, Jesus Christ. It's depending on Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. So if you are here this morning and, and, and your faith is in Jesus Christ, let me encourage you. Be baptized. Jesus did. The early church did. Jesus commanded it. And it's your opportunity to be able to look back at that acceptance that God has placed in your life through the finished work of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a couple songs. We have some clothes here. I mean, if you just want to jump in, that's fine, whatever. But we have some clothes here. And, uh, and we'd be happy to. Uh, we're going to ask the elders and pastors if they could make their way over towards the kitchen. They'll just spend a couple of minutes just talking to you and making sure that you understand what it is that we're doing. And, and if you want to be baptized this morning, then, hey, today's the day. And you know what? Maybe you want to talk about it. Let us know. Shoot us an email at office at utown.org. I love you guys. There is no time I experience the delight of God more than when I stand up here in Babylon and you don't fall asleep. So thank you. <laughs> God's so very good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Holy smokes, Lord, we have everything we could possibly need in Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's somebody here this morning that that needs to, to follow you in obedience, that today would be the day. Lord, I pray you just continue working on their hearts, continue molding them and shaping them. I pray that, again, that those of us who are here this morning, that, that we would remember that our, our, our main identity is in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And the fact that we are your children, and that'll never change because the finished work of Christ said so, because the tomb's empty. <laughs> so, so God, do a work among us, change our hearts, and Father, lead us and direct us. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And it's in his wonderful and matchless name I pray. Amen.